We know that we are compelled by Christ to move beyond just these four walls as a church. And we want to be a church that continues to look beyond our walls with the love of Jesus to bless the socks off this community. And as a church, we feel led to be a church that is for the good of our city. Hey, this morning, um, I want to just welcome you. And for those of you who are watching online at home, I want to say to you as you're sitting on your couch, at your table, wherever it is that you find yourself, that God would meet you this morning in your space that he would bless you and that he would meet you wherever you're at on your journey with him. And this morning, where I'd like to take us is there's two things that I hope to bring us to this morning. One is to help us move one step closer to Jesus and then one step closer to healing. And I think those things matter. So that is my hope, my intent for us this morning that we move into that space. And before we jump into the text that we're going to look at, I'm going to ask my friend Stephanie Warrens to come on up. And Stephanie is going to read to us out of the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. And I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you all to stand if you are able. And the reason why I want you to stand is because I believe that we listen differently when we stand. And so she's going to read a good portion of Scripture for us. And I want us to fully engage in this particular story out of the Gospel of Luke And then we'll interact with the text and see what the text has to say to us. So thank you, Stephanie, for being here. Good morning. All right, join me in the word. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Stephanie. So let's do this this morning. We're going to jump into... um, 
the context and the setting of what's happening in the story. So we're gonna look at the story first to get an understanding of what it is that's actually happening in this dynamic. So there's lots of clues in the text. If you look at verse 36 right away, it tells us something about what's happening in this situation, that Jesus is invited to have dinner and he went to a Pharisee's house and then reclined at a table. So there's, there's some key words, some signals in that one verse that tells us a lot about what's going on in this particular situation. First of all, Jesus is invited by Simon, a Pharisee, which means that Jesus is an honored guest. And that's a big deal. And we'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, the text tells us that Jesus is reclining at a table, which tells us what kind of event that Jesus is at. So he's at a banquet. We think of banquet, we think of food, we think of celebration. This particular setting, banquet, means that this group of teachers who are teachers of the law, and when I say the law, I mean the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So these teachers, these experts of the law, holy men have assembled to have a conversation about God and about the way of life, giving their various interpretations of what's going on in the world and trying to make sense of the law of God given to the people. It also tells us that when the woman heard that Jesus was going to be present at this event, which means that word had spread that she then went to the event. And the reason why the woman is able to be present at the event is because this is a public affair. People are invited to come and listen in on the discussion, which explains why the woman is present. And so she heard that he was gonna be there. She actually beats Jesus to the event and she's ready for Jesus when he shows up. Verse 36 also tells us that Simon invites. So he invites Jesus as the honor guest. That places Simon in the position of being a host and a host had certain social and cultural expectations that were given to them that they had to meet. So as a host to your honored guest, there were three things that you were expected to deliver as the person arrived at the event. The first one is to provide a basin of water. Secondly, to greet that person with a kiss. And then third, to provide oil and put it over the person's head. Now, a bit of a side note, Jesus is a rabbi. That means that he's a teacher. And he's gaining massive popularity among the Israel people and among peasants and immigrants and people who are typically out in the margins. And the religious system that Jesus is in has all this order. There's like, there's a way and there's a place to interact with God. They've got their various interpretations of the Torah. They have high expectations on people. And so everybody has their place. So when you come into the presence of holy people, holy men in particular, there's a certain way in which you're supposed to conduct yourself because they wanna be pleasing to God and they wanna honor God through their sacrifice and through the sacredness of the spaces that they have created. So this is really important in this religious system. Order is a big deal. And Jesus enters into this order. And then this woman comes in and she disrupts this order, which gets really interesting in the story because it creates all kinds of tension. Intention's always good in a good story. Jesus then begins to address the host and he talks to Simon and look at what he says throughout the various indications in the story of what Jesus is getting at. In verse 44, he says to Simon, you did not give me any water for my feet. It was customary for the host to provide water for the honored guest. You think about the conditions in which they live. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. They had open sandals, and so their feet were getting dirty. So before you take a seat at the table and before you recline, 
Here's a basin of water for you to wash your feet. It's a sign of respect and honor to that person. Secondly, you did not give me a kiss, Simon. Now to greet someone with a kiss and in particular an honored guest was a way of saying we are equals. So if you don't give the kiss, that to me is a sign of contempt, bringing him below. You're below me, I'm up here. And then thirdly, we see that he did not provide oil for the head of Jesus. So it's like three misses right out of the gate. So the people watching this, they're experiencing this together. They're like, my God, what is he doing? He's missing all of these social cues, which then takes us to the woman. Now, who is this woman? And, and why is she coming to this holy event and disrupting this banquet? And I think it's safe to say, and I, I don't like putting things into scripture that aren't there, but I think it's safe to assume that something had to have happened to the woman before she arrived at the event, because you don't show up at an event and act like this unless something happened to you prior to it. It wasn't like she was just walking into the event thinking, you know what, it's a good idea. I'll bring some perfume and I'll disrupt this holy event. Because in verse 37, it tells us that this translation, one translation describes this woman as a sinner in the city. How's that for a societal given label? How would you like to wear that around? A sinner in the city, which signals, again, this is a prostitute. So understand that this woman is living under the power of the patriarchy in which men hold positions of power. Men hold dominance, men hold privilege. Women had very little rights, very little authority and very little influence, even though they had their perspective places. This particular woman is a prostitute. And so she's really out in the margins. She's considered unclean. Let's just leave that into the shadows of society or put her into the brothels. And so in verse 37, it tells us that the woman, she takes an alabaster jar of perfume and she goes to the banquet. Now we're gonna to get to that in a moment because that's a very powerful thing that's happening in the heart of this woman. I don't think this woman is showing up interested in hearing a conversation about God. And I don't think this woman is remotely interested in any sort of preconceived idea of what the religious order is all about. She doesn't seem interested in behaving by the supposed rules and regulations of how you're supposed to behave in the presence of teachers of the law. She goes in and she disrupts. And I think from Simon's perspective, because of Simon's role, as a Pharisee and a representation and a teacher to the people and keeping order, this would further solidify his suspicions about Jesus, that Jesus is actually disrupting the system. And you all keep thinking that he represents God, but he's disrupting the, the positions that we hold. And the fact that this woman is coming to Jesus and doing the things that she's doing would further solidify his suspicions and say, see, I've been telling you all along, you cannot trust this man. He's dangerous to the system. He's dangerous to what God is doing in the world. And then in one of the most scandalous acts that I have seen in all of the biblical narrative, the woman lets down her hair in the presence of holy men. This is a scandalous act because women in that context and time wore their hair up in public 
And the only time a woman would let her hair down is in the presence of her husband to signal, I'm ready to be intimate with you. And so for a woman to let down her hair in the presence of a rabbi, a teacher, and in the presence of all of these holy men would have been very scandalous. And according to Jewish law, if a woman let down her hair in the presence of someone who wasn't her husband, her husband then had the right to divorce her, which again places the tension. You see the power structure that's in place here. Now let's step back for a moment and take a deep breath and try to get the full brevity of what's going on in the story. And we're gonna lean into it even more in a deeper space. But let me ask you a couple of, of questions to kind of help us frame this. But if you're looking at the story, I think you can see this as one of two ways, depending on which frame you're looking through. First of all, I think you can see this as uh, disrupting the holy, or you can see this as a holy disruption. What is it? Is this disrupting the holy, disrupting the sacred order? that there's rules and regulations or is this a holy disruption in which God is actually right at the center of the whole thing and that God is actually giving us a picture through the person of Jesus, this is what I'm like and this is what I've been trying to tell you all along but you're not getting it. And you think it's about order and you think it's about all these rules and regulations that you have to follow. So I'm disrupting the whole system and I'm representing myself through the person of Jesus and I'm showing up in this form and I'm actually giving you a picture of what it looks like when God shows up at your gatherings, especially your sacred holy gatherings and I'm disrupting the whole thing. And sometimes God shows up in spaces and places and in people and in situations that we never expected if we're really looking. God shows up many times and he disrupts things and we're like, that can't be God. And yet God's like, I'm standing right here. This is, I'm right at the center of the whole thing. And many times we have our lenses that we're looking through going, this can't be what God is doing in this moment. Now I wanna talk about the two hearts in this story because I think these two hearts are a reflection of many of the hearts in this room. And I want us to be honest about ourselves and how we see God and how we see others and how we see ourselves, especially when it comes to the power of, of forgiving ourselves. And we're leaning into that practice of self-forgiveness this morning. What does that look like when there's things in us where we have missed the mark or we've hurt other people? How do we then move into those spaces where we begin to forgive ourselves? And it really is about the condition of the human heart. And there's two hearts in this story. You have Simon's heart and then you have the woman's heart. And they give us a picture of the heart center of humanity. And Simon's heart is, I think is what, I would lock it into what I would call a transformation or a transactional mode of operating where it's about the transaction. And we'll talk about that transactional piece. And I think the woman's heart in the story is experiencing what I would call transformation. Now, when I say transaction versus transformation. What I mean by that is transactional has to do with behavior modification. And as I was thinking about behavior modification, it seems to me that so much of what we see in particular in the Western church in, in America is really focused on behavior modification. 
And that's just not good news. All of this move and push towards a moral reformation that we have to be a certain way. And there's so much push in that direction. But that transformational space is the process for which the heart is actually becoming the way that God intended it to be. And when I say transformation, I don't mean like you arrive at a place and now you're transformed. I mean, it's an ongoing process in which we're moving towards healing and hope and where we're becoming more and more a reflection of who God is in the world. There's these two modes that we tend to operate out of this transactional mode and this transformational mode. And that transformational mode has more to do with who we are becoming as people. Whereas transaction has to do with kind of this fixed static space. And we love this transactional space. But this woman experiences transformation. She's being transformed. Many scholars believe this actually is Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, we know in the story of Jesus, becomes one of Jesus' followers. She becomes a disciple of Jesus. And then eventually she becomes a, a supporter, a financial supporter of Jesus. Think about where she made her money. And she's supporting the cause of Jesus in the world, following Jesus around. She's experienced something that's changing her. She's beginning to see herself through a different lens, through that transformational space. Now I wanna step further back for a moment into the bigger story of God, because I think every time we talk about the scripture, it's important to root ourselves in the big story of God. But if we go back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 starts with a poem, and it's a beautiful poem, by the way. If you haven't read it, I would advise you to read it. It's a really beautiful poem. But it describes humanity as being born into oneness with God. Humanity is connected with God, connected with others. Ultimately, they're connected with themselves. They're connected with creation. There's like this deep oneness that's happening in the origin of the world. And I, I call this original blessing. Like we come into the world with original blessing where God's favor is for us and towards us and wants relationship with us. So we start in oneness and we all begin on this path of connectedness and goodness, original blessing. And as we develop as humans, we see in the Genesis story, we see this path of humanity and as they progress in their own story and walking with God and people, we begin to live into certain narratives and stories that are passed on to us by family systems by cultural expectations, by friendships and people around us, ways in which we're being shaped and influenced. And we, we quickly begin to realize that as we move into the world, we experience hurt, we experience woundedness, we experience trauma, both physically and emotionally. And sometimes I'll hear people say when they're talking about their own painful parts of the story, like, well, my trauma isn't as bad as so-and-so's trauma, so I don't know if it really matters. Can I just tell you this, that your trauma matters because it happened to you. It matters. It's how you experienced it. So you have pain, you have woundedness, you have trauma, and we carry this around in our bodies. So we start with oneness, we start with connectedness, and then very quickly in our stories, we start to disconnect from ourselves, don't we? And so we come out of this oneness that God is one. 
And as we start to break off into pieces, various parts of who we are start rising up in the story. And we develop defense mechanisms. We develop modes of self-protection. We develop um, determining where we fit in our systems. This is how I fit into my family system. I'm the protagonist or I'm the antagonist. I'm the, the mediator or the peacemaker. This is how I fit into these systems. And so often what we do is like out of a lot of that pain comes this transactional mode of how we do relationships with one another. And it's all based on performance. This is how I fit. So if I do this, then this. And here's the thing, friends, with transactional approach to God, it's never enough. It's never enough, it never measures up. You know that feeling inside yourself, I'm just, I'm just not doing enough, I'm not enough, or I'm not performing well enough. And that starts to get into the inner story and then that begins to leak into how we relate to God, how we relate to others and ourselves. And then many of us are told that there's parts of us that are, are bad, there are parts of us that we just need to get rid of. But it gets murky for me because then there's also parts of us that are broken. There's wounds and there's hurts and there's traumas. And for many of us, we don't know what to do with those experiences. And so they just live in our body and they're in our cells and they're in there as part of our human experience that we carry these things around. And then those parts of us get broken off into pieces. And so we start from oneness and then we start to experience fragmentation. And now we're two, three, five, seven. And there's all these bits and pieces of us. And then those narratives of you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're unacceptable, start to sink into the inner story and that affects our psyche and how we view ourselves. And then we start beating ourselves up. Am I talking to anybody in the room? right? We beat ourselves up. And we're really good at beating ourselves up, aren't we? Like, I don't need you to be cruel to me. I got that. I got that taken care of. It's going to be my own worst critic. And so often, we don't know what to do with that stuff. So what do we do when we're beating ourselves up? How, how do we move into the spaces like, what, what do I do with those bits and pieces of me that are now fragmented or uh, maybe you've had this experience, somebody hits a wound or uh, hits something inside of you, a, a hurt, and then it triggers something and then you react in a way and you find yourself having an out-of-body experience and you're watching yourself going, who is that? And it's you. And you're like, ah, where did that come from? That came out sideways, right? It's tough being human, isn't it? It's a very difficult thing because we have all these ways in which things manifest themselves in our human story and those things and bits and pieces of us get hit. And what it does so often and what I see in myself and others is that now we have a distorted view of God. And when you have a distorted view of God, everything can get really murky. And then you see others through that lens. And so much of that distortion, so much of that performance, so much of that never enoughness is rooted in that transactional way of living and being in the world. If I do this, then this. These people are good, these people are bad. The way that Jesus is behaving in the story, incorrect. The woman, her behavior, clearly incorrect. Transactional. And yet the scriptures over and over again declare that God is one. Even in their prayer, it says, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. He's not two, 
He's not three, five, seven, he's one. And that's where we come from, out of that oneness, that connectedness. And that what life attempts to do is to pull us apart and fragment us and push all these pieces of us, scatter it abroad and remind us of everything that we're not. Can I say this, that you keep telling yourself what you're not, what you aren't isn't interesting. It's not interesting, but who you are, what you're becoming, the way that you're being transformed, the healing that's taking place in your life, that's fascinating. That's God's fingerprint on humanity, moving us to deeper spaces of healing. But man, do we like that transactional mode, don't we? We love transaction because at least we know where we stand. There's a sense of control when I'm in the transactional space between me and God and my own life and others. And I love what Quincy said last week about two weeks ago, cute and beautiful God. What a great picture, Quincy. That cute and beautiful space. And I thought about cute and beautiful and held it up against transactional and transformational. And that cute God is that God that we take out of our pocket and we hold them up, I need you right now. And I could use you in this space, but we love to interact with cute God because cute God is a God that we can control. Cute God is a business associate. I can negotiate with cute God. I, cannot I can't negotiate with beautiful God. Because when I'm in the presence of beautiful God, I'm transforming, I'm becoming. I can't control it. There's all this uncertainty and ambiguity with beautiful God and I'm not sure what to do. All I can do when I'm in the presence of beautiful God is delight. I can only delight in your presence as you transform me and make me into the person that you want me to be as you enter into those false narratives of me beating myself up over and over and over again. And I hear the voice of Jesus moving into that space. Let's change that story. Let's practice self-compassion and self-forgiveness. Yes, you weren't at your best in that moment, but let's heal those spaces inside of the human heart. Now, after this woman takes this banquet off the rails, which is just great, isn't it? She takes the banquet off the rails. That's the kind of banquet I wanna be at. And in verse 39, Jesus turns to Simon, because guess what? Simon's actually interested in what he can get from this woman. Jesus is interested in healing Simon's heart. So look at what it says in verse 39. When Simon saw what she did, can we just stop there for a moment? When Simon saw what she did, a heart that is rooted in transaction is very quick to see everything that's wrong with everybody else. And I'm talking, I'm talking to everybody in the room right now. And that if we're honest and candid with ourselves, can we admit the fact that many times when we're judging somebody else, we're actually judging ourselves? That much of our judgment is actually rooted in the fact that we may be, we're fear that this may be true of me too. So we turn it to other people because we don't want to look at ourselves. We don't want to look at the inner narrative that's going on inside of ourselves. And so we're trying to judge away some of those things that we fear may be true of ourselves. And then we call it out in others. And many times when we're calling it out in others, we're yelling at ourselves. I don't want these things to be true of me. So Simon is invited to look at the woman. But then Simon thinks to himself, it says in verse 39. And as he's thinking to himself, because our inner thoughts matter, 
as he's thinking to himself, he says to himself, if this man was actually a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him. He would know and recognize who this woman is. Jesus responds to the thoughts of Simon and tells him a story. But let me please remind everybody in the room, Simon is not the villain in this story. And I think we probably can identify with Simon more than we like to admit because of this transactional mode of how we see everything. It's how the world works is through transactionalism. But then that filters into everything. And if we're honest with ourselves, Simon's narrative sounds really familiar, does it not? Because we gotta keep order. We can't have these kinds of people in the building. Uh-uh. And Jesus begins to pull that down and break it. And Simon's like, if this guy was a prophet, he would know. Again, Contempt, if he really was speaking on behalf of God, people. And then Simon begins to hear the response of Jesus as Jesus responds to what's going on inside of Simon. What I love about Jesus is that he's tearing down the power structure. He's tearing down the patriarchy. He's tearing the whole thing down. And I love that about Jesus. He's not interested in people's perceptions of religious order and rules and regulations, he's breaking it all down. And he says, this actually is how God's economy works. You wanna talk about transaction? Here's how God's economy works. And then he tells a story to Simon. And he said, there's two people that owed a particular money lender a great amount of money. The first one owed this money lender two months labor. The second one owed this particular money lender two years labor. But then the money lender has compassion on these two individuals and forgives the, debt, forgives the debt and pays it in full. So he asked Simon the question, okay, Simon, who is actually going to love more in this situation? And Simon says, well, I suppose, since you love that language, I suppose the one who has been forgiven more. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Hear this, friends. The size of the debt determines the magnitude of the joy. This woman's heart is exploding. You don't, you don't do what this woman does if you're just dealing with a cute God. But if you're dealing with beautiful God, the eyes of perfect love, you'll do everything you can to disrupt and move towards the person of Jesus and towards ultimately towards healing. And what I love about Jesus is he says, okay, we've got forgiveness and forgiveness is really an important piece, but he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say forgiveness is then the end result. He says forgiveness is actually part of the process and then more needs to happen. Because if we're honest, friends, we do the work of forgiveness and then we turn inside and we have a really hard time forgiving ourselves of the ways in which we have hurt other people. And Jesus comes into that space and says, I wanna deal with those wounds, those hurts, the trauma, the unresolved stuff that's inside of every human body. And then Jesus moves into that space. And he says, let's actually deal with that. Forgiveness is powerful, but let's deal with the hurt. And that for so many of us is where we stop. We're like, I did the forgiveness piece. Now shouldn't I be better? It's like, yeah, but there's still the hurt that needs to be addressed. And Jesus moves into that space and says, let's practice some self-compassion and self-forgiveness. 
And then in one of the most powerful expressions in healing that I've seen in the scriptures, it says in verse 44, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, isn't that fascinating? He turned to the woman and started talking to the guy over there, Marnie, because he's after her heart and he's trying to reestablish her and heal this woman and heal knucklehead over there too to bring healing and restoration. Prostitutes had alabaster jars of perfume. It was part of the trade. You had to have perfume because you had to sweeten your breath and sweeten your body in between clients because you can't have the stench of another man on your body when you're going into the presence of yet another man because it's all about transaction, right? But it says the woman arrived and she poured out her entire alabaster jar of perfume onto the feet of Jesus. She poured out her livelihood, people. Everything that she based her very identity on, she poured it out. She's like, I don't need it anymore. And when you encounter beautiful Jesus, you're gonna clear off the shelves and pour out everything you got. And when you encounter cute God, you might show up and express, but the size of the debt always determines the magnitude of the joy. And this woman who was forgiven much comes in in an expression of healing and love and an outpouring of joy. She pours out everything she's got onto the feet of Jesus and says, I don't need it anymore. I don't need it. I'm with him. I'm going in that direction. I'm moving towards that healing space. And what we experience it with Jesus is that he takes all of those fragmented pieces, all those bits in our stories, and he begins to bring them into wholeness. It says, I'm actually interested in integrating all of it into your very essence, into that point of origin, taking those pieces of us that were like, oh, that part of me I don't wanna look at. And Jesus says, we can do something with that. We can make something beautiful out of that and then bring that and integrate back into oneness because that's who God is. So he is very interested in your healing and in your hurts. I asked our staff team this week, the question, so how do you practice self-forgiveness? And each person would answer. And then Julia, is Julia in the room, by the way? Julia, are you in here somewhere? Hey, thank you for turning the question back to me. <laughs> and Julia and her wisdom and her own perception said, how about you, John Wolner? Not quite like that. That's how I heard it. <laughs> well, we'll work that out this week. How's that? But she asked me the question and I was quiet. And then Beth Lilstrom says, he does that a lot. He asks questions and then he likes to control the narrative. And I, I felt like, oh, I'm being exposed. This is really helpful. But thank you, Beth, for that gift. But it did cause me to look at myself because there's bits and pieces of me that are broken, hurt. And there's this one particular narrative that's really tricky for me. And this particular narrative is that I'm a failure and I'm a disappointment to my family because I haven't been able to keep my wife with her parents. And then now my daughter lives in San Francisco and my son lives in Grand Rapids and we're all scattered abroad. 
And there's that part of me that's like, this must be my fault somehow, if I'm being honest. And I can feel the heart of Jesus saying, we should move into that space and talk about what's really going on because it's not true. You're doing the best you can, but can you practice a little self-compassion on your own heart and on your own well-being? Can you practice some self-forgiveness and can we move into those spaces together? Do you trust me because I want you to be whole and healed? So thank you, Julia, for asking me the question. You got me thinking this week. And I wanna lay it out for all of you this morning. What's your next step? What's like the next step that you're gonna take towards your own healing? Is it practicing self-compassion on those parts of you that are tender and hurt? Is it just moving in that direction and inviting Jesus into that space so that you can experience the power of not only the forgiveness of Jesus, but then forgiving yourself? And then learning how to love yourself? Can you imagine if you all loved yourselves, we might be able to start a revolution in the world by giving ourselves self-compassion in that healing space. So I invite you this morning to move towards Jesus, to move towards healing, and to decide what's the next step for me. We're gonna sing a song called Make Room, where we invite God in the space to make room for more of Him, to come into every part of life, to bring His healing presence into our hearts, our hurts, to experience transformation. So listen, sing, engage, and then after we're done with the song, we're gonna have people up here on my left and on my right that will pray with you. Because I know you've come into this space this morning and you're carrying things. And so we have people here who wanna pray with you and over you and to bless you with the goodness of God. Grace and peace be with you, my friends.